Hello and welcome to the Sunday Lunch Project podcast for Sunday the 25th of October 2020. This is your host Nigel Creaser and today we have an interview with Craig McKay, the AI shark guy, where we will talk, uh, you'll find out a little bit about uh, how AI and his passion for AI in project management, but also some of his background and how he got there. So, uh, on with the news. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, then please get in touch at sundaylunchpmpod at nigelcreaser.com. Hello there. Um, it's been an interesting uh, few weeks. I've had some fantastic interviews the last couple of weeks. Um, one with uh, Adrian Belegion, um talking about his new book, Teams That Swear. And that will be out in a couple of weeks, in November sometime. Uh, his book, I think, comes out in November. So it'll uh, try and coincide that, help him with, uh, help him with his book. But also, um, there's some real nuggets of information in there I'm sure you're going to... Uh, uh, appreciate. And I also had a conversation with Sarah M. Hoban around um, productivity. She uh, is very passionate about productivity and um, on her website has a few tips and tricks. We talk about different ideas around how in this time we can improve our productivity. Touched a little on um, the, the remote working aspect and how that changed things. Um, but they were really good interviews, really enjoyed them. And uh, one of them, the one with Sarah, sparked uh, a memory that I'd uh, started scribbling together a little blog of a few tips on um, that I've used for productivity. And so I've decided to put it into a little um, a little book, started on it. I'll finish it before, well, plan is before the end of the month, but maybe a little bit later, finish doing the first draft at least. And I will... Uh, give you guys a free copy of it when it's done a digital free digital copy so uh, keep an ear out for that and uh, you'll I'll put all the details and the url to go to um in a few weeks when i've finished it he says promise it now i've made it public i'm in trouble and i gotta do it so there you go always good to do that sort of thing um other than that uh life has been fairly fairly calm not too wild, obviously the usual lockdown woes that we all have and are being over here. We've got Brexit happening at the end of the year as well, so um, I'm actually watching the news, which is something not not as religious as some people, but uh, something that I didn't usually do. So that's quite um, quite interesting. Uh, the fact that I've started doing that, uh, I may get out of it, but. Um, I think that's it. I think I will let you get on with the interview with Craig and uh, have a great time. And that's Beach After. Cheers now, bye. So it should be telling you that I'm recording. It is. Good. Cool. Well, today I have got... Now I'm going to start that again. Today I'd like to welcome Craig McKay, 
CEO and founder of Shark Tower. Craig has spent his whole career delivering change, whether it's to be lean process efficiency, people change, software solutions, new product propositions, or large-scale technology transformations. And during his 20 years of delivering projects and seeing too many failures, Craig is obsessed with tackling the wasted effort and the investment in projects. Whether it's caused by misalignment of incentives, lack of outcome clarity, or deliver, a deliver-regardless mindset, working to governance milestone or siloed manual subjective reporting, the failure rate in projects is still too high. Too many projects are still managed by slide deck, sticky notes, and gut instinct. He believes businesses can be better, make better decisions, and ultimately, ultimately make the world a better place. He believes that project delivery can be done better and we, if we learn from our mistakes. And he believes people could be using their time more effectively if outlined to outcomes. And he says he knows the answer to the use of data in order to do this. And he reckons it's time for a change of delivery to a more data-driven data one. So Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nigel, and thanks for the introduction. It's all right. I think you recognize some of the words. As, as, as all of my guests realize, I do plagiarize uh, most of any, any publication stuff you've got. So, uh, yeah, kind of repurpose. And I like to reuse wherever possible. Absolutely. You know, to drive out waste, which is great. So let's crack on straight with the, um, the, uh, the questions that we've got here. I think some people may have already picked up a slight accent there and maybe guessing the general area of where you're from, but let's find out where were you born? Where was Craig originally from? Yeah, so uh, obviously I'm Scottish uh, and haven't <laughs> moved far. I've tried, I've tried to, but uh, yeah, born in central Scotland, uh, uh, moved around a little bit, got some uh, roots in the Highlands, um, but you know, uh, last actually 21 years in Edinburgh. Uh, and I've tried to travel the world the best possible, even being a consultant, but I always seem to always go back to Edinburgh. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's been it's impossible to get away. But Edinburgh is a beautiful city, so it's a great place to go back to. Absolutely. Yeah. So you said central Scotland. Whereabouts is that? Would people have heard of it? Or is it one of these smaller little villages? Oh, no. Everybody's heard of Falkirk, the, the amazing oh, yeah. uh, yeah. metropolitan centre that is Falkirk and the great Falkirk Football Club. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's where I was born and that's uh, where my allegiances lie. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So, that's, uh, so you're um, living in Edinburgh now, in, in the city itself, is it? Or is it yeah, uh, we're, we're right, right in the city. If anybody knows Edinburgh, uh, right opposite the zoo. Okay. Uh, so, very nice. Get to, you know, my... Uh, dog walk or run is actually around the back of the zoo in Kesturfin Hill so I get to see zebras uh, and uh, wallabies and kangaroos uh, most mornings when walking the dog which is quite exotic. Excellent, excellent. So uh, you've got a dog, you've got any family? I have, I've got two uh, rather large boys, um, 17 and a half and 12 and a half scarily so i um, starting to outgrow the house and outgrow us so yeah. um, I think all we'll be left with soon is the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you get into that situation of it like I don't know if you've seen John Bishop uh, talking yeah. about the fact that he's uh, no longer living with three boys he's got three what's this man doing in my house yeah absolutely that's just what's getting like and but I think my wife's already starting to fill the nest because she's uh, recently just bought a puppy that we get in three weeks to start the cycles so I think we're going to end up having more dogs than and, and kids soon so um, <laughs> we're already starting to plan for the <laughs> for the empty nest Wow. So um, 
so what you you were obviously born in in Falkirk. Did you grow up in Falkirk and in, in around that area? Uh, you more or less moved moved around a little bit, um, but generally was on either side of the Forth, uh, the River Forth. Right. Uh, so always quite close by um, between sort of Falkirk, Bowness, and Cardin and Fermanagh, which are all in the same area, and actually all very close close to to Edinburgh. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, oh. Always grew up here. That's not the 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 most exotic journey uh, in life, but uh, I uh, know everything around about the Fulfield Bridge. Of, yeah. You know, and and the Fulfield Bridge. That's probably the highlight of my <laughs> youth is crossing that and and going for wild cycles. Right, cool. So, uh, when when you were growing up there, and obviously in Scotland, and and I've I've been to Scotland and around that area a couple of times, and. Um, I think it's absolutely stunning. The, the, the multiple parts of Scotland. In fact, the one bit I recently discovered, we went to um, Dundee, which is a little bit further on, and just just beyond mm. there. And we went out to I can't remember the name of the beach, but it was like um, we spent a, a sunny August day on a, on a beach in Scotland, where normally I have a different vision of what Scotland is, uh, more hilly and more rainy usually, and it was fantastic. And uh, this mm. immense. Um, beach and and i guess from where you where you've got access to beach is fairly easy as well yeah we're very spoiled you can either go down the east coast uh, to, uh from edinburgh towards dunbar which you've got some brilliant golden beaches and surfing beaches um which when it is sunny like today is is, is, is beautiful and then as you say from obviously oh from edinburgh on the other side of the water to to dundee and you've got the what's called the east nuke which has got all the fishing villages and then the beautiful beaches around towards st andrews etc yeah. um and then uh, on the other side of scotland you go up uh you know through the mountains and Loch yeah. Lomond and glencoe and it's yeah, stunning so i don't think there's a place in the world maybe uh, chamonix and the alps i might be convinced to move to um <laughs> but yeah there's not i don't think there's much better than scotland and parts of north wales so. yeah 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 well north wales is right on my doorstep so yeah i agree there's some elements that i love um and i, I can say that, that if, if anybody want to see something of that uh nature in scotland if you watch the film train spotting the bit that i remember is that this when they're going through on on the the train on uh Rannoch Moor, is it yeah, and they're they're the most the most remote station. Uh, you yeah. get off there, and you can a little walk to Eufostel, which you you can't drive to, and you have to walk around a lock to get to the nearest road. So yeah, that's that's uh, in the sort of remotest part of Glencoe. It's uh, stunning. Yeah, because I, I I took a trip up that way uh, many years ago, and we took the train from that train, that same train journey, and it was kind of like when I saw it on there on the film. Later than that, it was like, my yeah. God, I've seen that, <laughs> <laughs> which was quite interesting. So, when you were growing up in that beautiful part of the country and beautiful part of the world, in fact, what what did you want to be? Did you want to be a project manager? Uh, certainly not. I don't think I, know, I don't think anybody knows what a project manager is when they're growing up. Um, <laughs> Daughter, <laughs> my daughters do. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's true. Actually, I think yeah, our children have probably suffered <laughs> hearing yeah. a lot about it, um, and I was trying to teach them how to educate and run their school work as projects. Um, but no, well, I certainly didn't know any project managers when I was growing up. And I, I first of all, I always wanted to be a primary school teacher. Uh, oh. You know, even actually in primary school, I used to get involved. Um, I think mainly to do with my um, hyperactive activity or my uh, you know, frustrations that well, my teachers used to actually take me back to previous years and help me teach you know, or, or, or support you know the, 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 the younger classes so I used to always get involved in the 
the uh, you know, supporting activities for you know, kids maybe two or three years younger than me. So I always wanted to be a primary school teacher. That's all I ever wanted to do. Um, but also, often quite a lot of that was also involved in arts and crafts. So as I went through secondary education, it, it, it was to be a graphic designer. I actually wanted to originally be an artist and it was to be a graphic designer. Um, but actually I got quite frustrated by it because I realised that a lot of it was spent doing theoretical studies and art history studies and I just wanted to do practical stuff and I wanted to experiment and make you know make things and, and get on and design t-shirts and stuff so yeah I always wanted to be a primary school teacher and still to this day it's one of my biggest regrets I'd love to have gone and done teaching and many times in my career I've thought of getting out of projects and j jumping into teaching um, but yeah that's what I wanted to to to, to to do and that's where my passion still lies a little bit I think sometimes I think when you're running projects it's a bit like being a primary school teacher yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I often I often compare as you, you mentioned like you, you obviously and you probably you obviously your daughter's through this as well I often compare my kids experience at school of obviously our experience of being project managers or, or trying to drive change yeah. you know and having to you know, try and corral people and get people to focus <laughs> and, 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 and get people to to collaborate and you know that's obviously one of the frustrations my kids always came back from school was people wouldn't collaborate in the class and people are often distracted and got their own priorities and um and that's pretty much like being a project manager yeah and just stakeholder management in many ways i imagine as a as a primary school teacher you've got a number of stakeholders you're dealing with <laughs> you've got whether, whether it's in the room with the kids or the yep the local education authority or the headmaster or the parents. And it's kind of you, you, I do, um, uh, especially with the things going on at the moment and for people listening, maybe in the future, um, that yeah. we're in the middle of the, or I, I keep saying in the middle because I don't know where we are with the, um, 2020 COVID, um, yeah. pandemic and, uh, and the teacher, in, we've just had the, the kids about four and I go back to school, um, uh, having been locked down here in the UK and that um, as a teacher the extra things they've got to do mm. and the teacher burden thing it, I, I've no, uh, no no way I'd want to be here in that in that position it's um, whilst you have different stresses with doing project management and stuff that whole thing is I can't imagine how difficult it is and I have some friends who are teachers that I know it's it, they can't I think they're they can't win at the moment yeah, my, my, my wife's actually a, a, a teaching assistant for um, a, a specialist school in Edinburgh that deals with um, high dependency and autistic kids and stuff. So obviously, they, especially with you know, the current situation that we, 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 we're dealing with in 2020, uh, everything gets disrupted. And obviously, you know, a lot of these kids are used to routine. So they have to adapt really fast and create new routines. And I think, you know, in all teaching, it's amazing what they have to do. And I think... I, I, I use it a lot. I could talk hours about the parallels between if you want to learn anything about stakeholder management or delivering change or is it, you, you look at teaching because you know, you've got a classroom of, you know, some classrooms of 30 people or 30 students, 30 children. Everyone's got a different learning style. Everyone's got a different priority. Everyone's got a different incentive for being there. And somehow being able to speak to them all and engage them all at different times and try and pull them along and, and try and engage them and keep them interested. Yeah, that's a major and then when you hit a situation where you have to change your whole teaching style overnight and adapt new technologies and do it remotely um i think there's a lot to be learned from you know teachers and, and how to deal with um 
different stakeholder groups and, and keep them engaged and, and adapting your style to multiple people all the time yeah i've never you know it's not it's, it's until this conversation that's one thing i've not really thought about it in that context and that that whole whether it's conscious or un unconscious trying to adapt your own style as you, you ever most effective ways change yourself rather than try to change someone else when you're trying to do something and kind of um I suppose the history, the, the, in history, going back and maybe around the time when I was at school, and maybe even well, even more so earlier, was that it kind of one authoritative rule, which is thou shalt always do this, and that yep. isn't necessarily, as you say, for all of the and the same with project manager. You can go into a project and you can try to bang the desk and say you're the <laughs> you're the one in charge, and soon find out how things you don't get told stuff and things don't get done but you don't know about it until it's too late and or you can and the, the same would be without teaching some of those kids would just knuckle down and do it and others just wouldn't get it and be paralyzed by that kind of approach yeah and but i think i think teachers evolved you, i guess really <laughs> well teachers had to evolve because i think yeah. society has evolved as well so i think you see yeah. that there, there's no there is no respect for authority so you can't you definitely can't manage a classroom in that sense anymore um, and obviously there's also the boundaries of what you can and can't do right there's yeah. no uh, there's no threat that teachers can have there's no punishment yeah. they can have or anything so again it's totally that and i think if you look at our um you know our workforce as well again it's that you know it's not yeah, that's changed not that it's changing it's not that there's disrespect for experience or anything but actually there's great challenge but people come in there from an entrepreneurial mindset and actually believe that they can you know change everything from it up so everybody wants to make impact which is actually quite good yeah. you know this is great but it's different than uh just follow me because i'm telling you because i've i'm wearing the the hat today that says i'm the project leader or whatever yeah uh, that you know doesn't exist today so yeah there's lots, definitely lots of parallels in that as well yeah I've, i have seen people it's that whole thing of stepping into a room and going you should uh, well you, uh, the great picture of this and the, the great example of it is people He's watching the uh, the Apprentice TV show, which I used to love, and I stopped now because yep. the the characters changed. But the people that originally were on there seem to be genuinely in there. Some of them don't necessarily, and maybe I'm just the way I've interpreted it a bit like Big Brother when it started. It was great. After that, it was people looking for five minutes of fame. And, I agree. Uh, I agree. And just the whole thing of where you've got some someone who is you're the project manager, which was like when watching what they were doing was scraping my hands down went, where's the gantt chart you're not a project manager um, <laughs> yeah. but that whole that whole um where you've seen them say i'm the project manager so you need to do it and it's kind of like yeah. straight away you could see the people in the room go sod you then you're the one who's not going to get it done and it is the the um the talk of the servant leadership and a lot of lot more flatter structures in organizations and the the as you say the the ability to talk to anyone within your organization i think is paramount at first project managers to be able to do that whereas i imagine trying to get stuff done historically where you had to follow the hierarchy no matter what whereas i, I know most organizations now you can kind of get a, a, get told off or doing something kind of that you should maybe not got the authority to but you're doing it with the right reasons whereas you wouldn't dare to do it 30 40 50 years ago yeah interesting one of the one of the one of the, one of the lessons I, I learned when i learned that the most was actually 
you know, and it was many years into project management, but it was when we actually started um, working with a company called FDM that do uh, placement for ex-military personnel mm-hmm. and, and move them into industry. Um, and my, my impression of the military was always command and control. So it, it was completely authoritarian. You just followed and you got shouted at and you just followed blindly into yeah. war situations and stuff. And that probably was, again, the case back many, many times ago. But actually what, and I was actually working with them a lot. And actually when I was at Cap Jemenif, I were for a while, I worked with a lot of ex-army officers and stuff as well. And, and what I you know, learned was actually it's, it's completely opposite to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually done through a committee of experts, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the officers, the sergeants, the, the persons in lead, they, they, they consult at every step of the way and they have to because the specialists throughout the squad um, yeah. and, and they're their servant leader. And, and, it's, and they're not there to make people blind and follow, make decisions, they're there to be challenged, they're there to speak in experts. Um, and when I actually saw them, you know, especially when we looked at FDM, people who are brand new into uh, working in corporate world, they really struggled where where the fact that people weren't collaborating on decisions and they were being asked to blindly follow a decision that nobody understood and people were just delivering projects for the sake of it. Um, but they they then took control and they were so good at corralling people, getting people to then make you know, consensus decisions um, and actually move things forward quicker for that because then people were you know, buying in and believing and people were, had a voice and were listening to. And that, that, that totally changed my perception that you know, actually for a, a number of years I was getting caught in the trap that actually you were in charge of the project, so you just pushed it through and you made people follow you and you banged the table. Um, but it was actually working with you know, lots of ex-military that I, I realised actually that what a servant leader really does um, to drive things forward, uh, which was an eye-opener for me. Yeah, it's, that, that kind of echoes some of the things. There's, a, there's an, another podcast that I listen to. I've been listening to, it's probably one of the first ones I listened to actually, um, called Manager Tools, which is mm-hmm. out, out of the States. And there's a couple of guys... Um, and I recommend it to anyone to listen to. Um, you know, Marco Zan, sorry, um, uh, Mike Ozan and Mark Horseman, which are two, they're two ex-military guys and then been in project, in management in general and in some large organizations. I can't, I can't remember the names of them now, but they talk about similar sort of thing about the fact that what the, the knowledge, the things that they learned in their military career managing and they kind of talk about similar sort of things and, and they're complete management geeks and actually if someone wants to improve their management improve their career prospects they they cover from how to do motivate teams to how to talk to a colleague who's got bo do you know what i mean yeah. it's it's come every everything they think about everything that you might come into in your career so um quite a few things i've listened to and gone i wish i'd known that four years ago kind of things <laughs> and they they use a thing called the disc model which is the the um, behavioral model that they use to kind of frame a lot of their stuff but it, i highly recommend it to anyone who's listening mm-hmm. it's uh, uh taught me a lot i'm not always ap- applied it but it's taught me a lot <laughs> now check um, that out yeah so you you talked about obviously wanting to be a primary teacher that kind of leads on to my next my next question, really, education. What, what, what was your education then? You, you were doing your graphic design at school. What, what, yeah, what no, did I, you I, continue I, I, on? Yeah, no, I did. I went off to uh, uh, art college and tried to do that and, uh, and, and, and fell out quite quickly. At the same time, I was enjoying working. Um, because I was obviously part-time jobs and stuff. And I, 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 again, I, I kind of got frustrated by the process of education where you know, it was having to learn a lot of theory. You're having to learn secondary subjects and art mm-hmm. history. And actually, I just wanted to experiment and get better at 
graphic design through doing it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I kind of so I fell out of of, of that, and I tried a little bit. I tried to do a bit of public art sculpture course and stuff, and um, but very quickly I, I just I, I I went and took on the job that I had. So when I was I was nineteen, and I was lucky. I was working. Um, in a, a, a call center for a startup bank in those times, and the Challenger banks in the old days when it was all moving from telephone banking to online banking for the first time. Uh, and I just loved it. I actually just loved working and learning fast and applying stuff. Uh, and I just didn't get that from education. So yeah, I, I sort of dropped out of wanting to be a graphic designer and thought, let's go work full time and see what I can do. Wow. So where, where was this then? So this was in Edinburgh, let me guess. It was right? in Edinburgh yeah. again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very exciting when it comes to travel, Nigel. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I haven't moved very far either. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, no, I, yep, I was in, in, in college in Edinburgh and then started working for a a Challenger Bank, startup bank in the, the days of Direct Line and Egg and stuff, and I worked for one yeah. called Stanley Life Bank at the time. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah, and that was in Edinburgh, and that's that was my start of my career in financial services and project management very quickly when I started there. Yeah. So, so moving on to that, so you so you, you move that was your sort of career. What? So the, my next question is how you got into project management, really, and and, and why? Yeah. So completely by uh, accident, and probably not didn't realise I was in project management for a while. Um, so. I think it, it was a great environment. I, mean, I, was in, I was in the first 20 odd, uh, 25 employees um, and originally started doing, you know, obviously mortgage, you know, advisory mortgage applications on a telephone, but very quickly you were able to do whatever you wanted to really to, if, to help the business grow. Um, so I started actually getting involved in um, resource planning. And in those days, everything was getting done by, you know, paper and, and, and basic matrix models of how many, resources you may need on phones based on call volumes uh, there was no there was no prediction no analytics no you know, volumetrics going on um you know and again i'm doing that while still you know, obviously being a mortgage advisor um and actually and very quickly i started working out there's better ways to do this and started teach myself uh, vba on excel and you know learning that actually there's there's there's, there's software for part, apparently uh, for, for managing workflow and call volumes and stuff who knew um but instead of getting the software i actually found out the formulas that were behind queue management um for well, actually for all queue management so like there was airline c and there you know and so airline sort of the whole series of them but that was how you manage queue management, whether it was in you know, supermarkets, whether it was on you know, telephones, you know, you know uh, and I kind of you know got that and started doing predictive stuff uh, with the call volumes that come through, and I started building the airline C models and VBA. That actually I was able to start um, doing quite sophisticated modelling of uh, call flows and actually the resource models you need. And so I started to become the resource manager for, which then eventually came to call centers um and that's by pure accident and and then they just sort of evolved again we were rapidly you know growing it was the yeah. time where everybody was trying to get the three-minute mortgage and then we had um mcob the new mortgage regulations or know your customer came along and stuff and we were dealing with old i think it was linux green screens at the time to, <laughs> to process stuff um and and and, and just kind of through that I, we we brought in a company um which probably most fundamental of my career, uh, a company called Vanguard, very evangelical lean thinkers. Um, so taught lean from the 
pure, you know, read the machine that changed the world, which is up here, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, and really, you know, properly thinking, systems thinking, um, you know, wasn't, you know, it wasn't for many years till after I started doing Six Sigma and everything, but, and we just tried to make the call center as efficient as possible. Um, and by that time, we were trying to really understand all the failures and the processes. Then we are trying to build new front-end systems and move off the old Linux stuff. Um, we were trying to move the systems online. So I was just involved in constant projects. Um, and I didn't really know there were projects change. And then you try and learn the new regulations. And you know, I can remember uh, being up at night reading the regulations myself because you're trying to think of ways to apply them and move it. Um, so you absolutely just accidentally fell into it. Um, and you know, but in a good way because actually what you were doing was delivering change. And actually, I think often when I look back at that, I realised that that was true agile. That was true rapid development iteration. It was true. You were A/B testing. We, at one point, we were creating new a new you know, system for uh, process mortgages. We were kind of hacking it, <laughs> which and I, I probably wouldn't want to talk about some of the data practices, um, but we were able to send out, uh, you, know, spe you know, specialist uh, packs, uh, legal packs of one solicitor or a different type to others to see where the failure rates were and which was the fastest process. And we were tagging them with different colors to see what would come back. And, you know, that was proper A-B testing and, you know, rapid development going on there. But again, before we even knew it, but it was just, you know, it was a, everybody focused around the single, how do we make this the most efficient output for the customer? Um, and it was great. And that was it. And then after that, I started to learn that maybe I'm a change guy and a project guy and started to follow a career path in that. Wow. So that's how you got into what, what other industries did you, did you, have you stayed mainly in banking or did you move around other industries? Yeah. So it was predominantly in financial services for the majority of it, but interestingly, like, you know, I, I always find industries weird, especially I, I really find weird people that recruit project managers or business analysts or change folks or you know, anybody, you know, any you know, technology folks, and they say, oh, you must have domain expertise. You must, uh -huh. you, know, well, you know, when I was in FS, I really, really did anything to do with financial services. Yeah. I did, you know, I did customer journeys. I did, you know, front-end systems. I did back-end systems. I did data migrations. I did property conciliations. I did, pro you know, I did branch refits. You know, I did cash, you know, supply movements, trying to work out the most uh, optimal route for cash pickups between branches. You know, those were logistic supply chain projects. So, uh, you know, it is very interesting. I think, you know, being, you know it was in FS for, you know, almost 15 years. Um, but, I, and yeah, I did, I think I did one major project, which was, you know, automating credit underwriting and other stuff and multiple, you know, sales journeys and stuff that I could, you know, and I did some regulations, some that truly were purely, you can say that was FS. Everything else were, you know, it was system development. It was, you know, data migrations. As I say, it was, you know, I, I remember actually having to go into branches one and branches and help measure, you know, the you know, customer footfall and footprint. So that was, you know, you know, flow analytics. Nothing really to do with FS, but it was to do with people movement and, and stuff. Um, so, you know, a really interesting career, actually. I loved it, you know, the variety of stuff we did in those days. Um, and then I did a little bit. I tried to do a bit of consultancy, trying to get out of FS. I played a little bit in public sector, but mainly in FS. Did a little bit in marketing. Then I had a really interesting two years at Edinburgh Airport um, as head of IT systems and development. And 
that again was just amazing, actually, because it was just everything was completely, you know, you know, different every day. You were doing, you know, new bag control systems, new security applications for the new security hall. You were implementing big capital projects, doing infrastructure. You know, great variety. Um, I saw an in, um, a presentation from. Um, one of the IT guys from Heathrow and they're talking something and I find it really eye-opening about actually the I'm thinking it's about landing planes and moving people but then when you start looking at the retail and all the the uh, um, uh, I see the bag hand, baggage handling the goods yeah. handling all that stuff and you realize that it's this little it's a city of, of every and it does it, it's a, it's this contained city um, yeah. and and all of those different services that are there have very different project tools and techniques that you might want to use from that. I think the point was, and this one was, a, I heard it, like the baggage handling system. If you stop your baggage handling system, you stop your yeah. airport. <laughs> and, you, and beyond that, then you stop the planes leaving other airports, which depending on the scale of your airport, it knocks on and you can, it, you can be worse than a volcano just from someone yeah. not being able to get their bags, can't it? It's that kind of scenario. It, 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 is, it is amazing, as you say. It's, 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 it's like a mini, mini city and everything has a, 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 you know, a, a, an inter interconnectivity that is probably not transparent, even when you're inside it. Um, but it, you know, and they play on the margins all the time um, yeah. because they try to run so optimal. Um, but it was great. You know, I think if, you ever, if you're, you know, if you're an, an IT geek or infrastructure geek, if you ever want to see interesting stuff, go look at, you know, a data room in a, any data room and there's multiple of them all over the airport and you just see the things that are in the racks um, and the different services they're running uh, it's just just insane so that was great fun I loved it excellent so thinking about this rich career that you've had what would you say would be um that you you mentioned some of them of in um uh in, um, in standard life, bank, standard yeah. life yeah. yeah the what what would you consider when you sat there and went, oh, hang on a minute, I'm a project manager, I'm managing a project? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I don't think I ever realized it when it was um, it's standard life, even though you, there, was, there was some um, amazing things there. I think that probably the, the one bit, you know, I, I did, um, and I probably had a title, maybe it was project analyst or something like that, or project we didn't really have project managers because it was almost BAU people were doing yeah. you know, most of the stuff um, and that was when we were actually putting in the new uh, regulations for um, KYC stuff and and when you know you realised that actually there were so many people around the room uh, and you were trying to coordinate that and you know and trying to, to, to solve problems together facilitate it you realise oh actually this is and, and I had a deadline as well because obviously regulations coming in and you realize actually well i need marketing here because we're changing obviously the, the you know the message and market front and, and, and the you know to, to customers we need systems change we've got the the you know the, the document um production team here because they're gonna have to change all the document management systems to, to put in the new forums and stuff and then we've got legal here because actually these are new regulations and you know you know uh, fsa being who what they are they can kind of give you a flavor of the regulations you've got to work out there yourself yeah. so everybody's trying to work around it and make it up um and you're trying to find the most optimal way to do it and that was probably the first time i realized oh okay this is the thing and it's also the first time i actually probably 
had a wee bit of imposter syndrome, if, if I realised what that was at the time. And you look around, okay, there's actually quite a lot of uh, you know, well-educated and experienced people here. We've got lawyers here, you know, yeah. heads of marketing. And, uh, and you kind of, then you felt responsible before we were just doing stuff. That was the first time I actually felt, oh, okay, responsible for making something, you know, happen here in regulatory. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting when that first dawns on you, especially when you're not officially in, it's not, it's not been a, a thing given to you. You didn't really realise that the, what the project structures were in those days. Yeah, that, that feeling of, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and how, yeah, the hell, how the hell am I going to make this work? <laughs> yep. And why are these people listening to me? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's a, that was definitely... Yeah. Uh, and I think, interesting, I speak to a lot of people these days, and I think there's so many people that are accidental project managers. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you just find yourself in the room one day and go, oh, crikey, yeah. <laughs> how to get there? Yeah, yeah it's, it is a, it does appear to be quite common, certainly. Certainly uh, of people of a similar age uh, as well and, yeah. and a bit older, definitely. I think there are, and, and I've, I met a recent, was it last year, I met a couple of people when I was down at uh, the PMI event in London and there were some of the, the students um, that were obviously typical aged um, yep. uh, students but they were studying project management and they were at that event because they were studying project management and I was kind of like taken aback at someone doing that because as you say uh, at, at my age I'm kind of like it's certainly not something I would have uh, uh, heard of or imagined at the time. Yeah no, definitely not in, 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 in our time there wasn't that was not something you came out it might there might have been a little bit of bolt on to maybe a you know, business masters but you know you, you actually see now yes there's, there's people that are doing their masters in project management um, yeah. uh, and, and using it as a real, you know, as an art and a psychology as well as a discipline, which is, uh, it blows me, blows me away when I meet these students these days because uh, actually they've got so much more insight than I had at that time. Yeah, well, you know, and I think in some ways it's, you're learning the way, aren't you, uh, when you get started and they say when, unless you've gone through that formal career steps and the formal training and not just the certifications and stuff, the actual experience of those that the that, like you say the art of the project management it's it makes it um it's a little bit trial and error at times and there are things that i know i look back over um uh, i think i remember once one of when i first rolled in something and i'd been and this is where we go to saying i'm the project manager kind of thing a bit of an, an admission here where i was stood chatting to someone something wasn't happening there was a change meant to go in or something. I'm stood there going, who the hell's sysadmin? Well, get out of me here now. And the, the person was sat next to me, as sat, yep. sat, sat right next to where I was standing. And they kind of, that's me. And I'm like, and I was kind of, kind of a little bit chagrins, walking away, going, oh, tail between my legs. Because <laughs> I was kind of yeah. like, yeah, yeah, think before you speak, Nigel, and maybe change your attitude, which I, I've tried to. <laughs> a little bit yeah. not always we're all still we're all keep learning <laughs> yeah absolutely so think so thinking about that was your first project what would you say in the projects you've been through is is your um largest or most significant i'm going to start changing that's the most significant project that you've managed because i keep quantifying that is large being to one person could mean anything so to you something yeah. significant and whatever that significant measure is and, and what and what did you what was the biggest thing that you learned um leading that significant piece of work 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's a it's a deep question. Significance versus largest. Um, no, the largest think, might mean the be the most significant to you, but I don't. Yeah, want to actually, no. So I think if I was thinking my largest, there was, there was definitely a big, massive, you know, seven hundred fifty million pound yeah. multi-year thing that I was. I they then was the delivery assurance um, leads report to the program. Pro, project director but um and there was lots of learnings that but actually the interesting the most significant one's probably the one that's probably shaped my view um over the you know of, of actually and sort of changed my mentality over the last uh, seven to ten years so it, it was it was i was involved in a, a lean transformation uh, program and i won't mention who it was for but actually so i was in there as a uh, as an external o o overseeing mm -hmm. it uh, and it was it, it, it was it was it was a good program of work, um, but it was a typical program of work that the the business case had been written by one of the strategy houses, uh, had sat in a drawer for two years and had been delivering along. So you know, when I you know, when I got involved trying to oversee, there was about forty five projects running parallel, um, and you know the first thing that I always try to do is it's just you know is to make sure that we have engagement. You know, we, we have business owners. We have uh, receiving teams ready. We know what the outcome is going to be for you know the, the users, the customers, and, and and just try to validate are we still doing the right thing. And you obviously immediately find out nobody's read the business case. <laughs> um, so you've you've got to try and find it and unpick it, and uh, you know, and I'll do a bit of value mapping, trying to work out okay, where's where's the benefit realization here? What's 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 the KPIs or the, the, the value levers that we're trying to deliver with these outcomes and 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 by this point everyone's solution focused right everybody knows what the deliverable is so you know, some people are changing processes some people are implementing new systems there's whole you know call center and rationalizations going on in this thing so it's a huge uh you know lean transformation going on across across this um arm of the business um and after i did you know my usual analysis and going through it there's there's the usual there's the you know, half a dozen projects that are nobody's really admitting to the benefits anymore. So the the supposed business owners or business sponsors for those projects are, you know, all sort of backing out of the optimization benefits or the, you know, the the, the customer uptake benefits. So you know, we've got we've got to address that. We've got to make sure that you know they're aligned and they've come a bit disengaged. But there was one that was clearly a stop this project, and um, so it was putting in a new, um, you know. Uh, you know, actually a really good solution um, a new system for processing uh, this type of loan uh, for the specific type of customer but since that lean transformation program had been written a while ago it actually been found you know found out and a decision made to stop selling that type of loan because it's no longer profitable for that type of customer so they basically you know, they were going to discontinue it not sell it and actually they were going to sell off the book and um, that was that was going to implement six months after they were going to implement this new software solution. Um, but obviously, it'd been running for a long time. They were only yeah. about four, I, 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 my memory gets fuzzy, but I think they were only about four or five months away from implementation. But still, when I obviously pointed this out to the, the program manager, first of all, because that's who I was reporting to for, for the whole thing, the, the response was, uh, but that's not, our, you know, that, that's, that's not our decision to highlight. You know, our job is to deliver what we're asked to deliver. We're on track. Uh, my team don't get a bonus or don't get rewarded for stopping projects. Um, I'd have to sell half the team home because they're contractors, uh, but we've been working with them for 18 months. Uh, and some of the other people here rely on their bonus to pay their holidays and stuff. So, you know, 
I'm not taking it any further. And I was literally told to stay quiet. Uh, and, and I found that incredulous. So we, we were going to waste five months worth of effort, money, and also training implementation after it for something we know would have no benefit realization because it was going to be discontinued six months after implementation. And nobody wanted to highlight that because it just become a disconnect between the product team and the operational team and everything else. So yeah. you, know, it, you can understand, but nobody wanted to put their neck up and actually save the company money, which would have been, you should have been rewarded for it. And that was my biggest line. That was my, you know, and I think it was probably a, a point in my time when I, in my career, had been getting frustrated by projects myself. Um, yeah. And, you know, because I just, you know, it's that whole, why are people not together? Why are people fighting this? Where's the resistance coming from? But you realize, well, people have just got different incentives. Some people are there to protect the business because their role is a protection role. So a project or change seems like a risk to them. Some people are measured on, don't raise change requests, make sure you hit every milestone, and that's yeah. how you get a bonus. And then obviously vendors only care about the software solution. And they, so it, that was a real eye-opener for me. Uh, biggest, probably the biggest learning I ever did, the most significant one in, in my career at that point. Uh, yeah, it's, it's that, um, and, and this echoes something from um, the talk that I saw, which was on, um, on sustainability within, within project management. And um, it, the, the, the talk there was around your time cost quality triangle, where as project managers, we manage to that. So you, as you say, you've got your scope of work to deliver. That's what you're going to deliver. So you're going to deliver that project and you get rewarded because you do it in time within and you get the quality and you get it within cost and you've ticked your job, you get your bonus or whatever, or you've succeeded in delivering that. And then the, the, the point they're talking about is around taking projects to have a different thing where they talked about having talking about um planet people and then profit and and that, that was the thing it's kind of it wasn't a and for the, it's not a woo woo sort of let's all hug each other and be happy and not be commercially sensible but it is that that comes to that third point there where you're doing the right thing for your organization and not for the project as it because yep. the project is irrelevant yes. all projects are pointless yep. there's no point doing a project as far as i'm concerned unless it helps your business or your organization yep. or the people in the world or the planet so it, it, it just it and, and that it was a real realization when they said and that's what we should be if we start thinking that way and that's really difficult as you say when you're if you're a, a vendor thinking the the three steps away from you or as you say with that guy who's the program manager who's got a team of people who he knows are going to struggle potentially some of them may struggle with debt or whatever and and you can understand that that point of view from that point but it's trying to work out how you join that because obviously from there i'm guessing you could have sat there and gone right we're going to cut this bonus right let's what what other successes can we do and what can we send that to make more profitability and then yeah. reward people with that but it, it, it's absolutely yeah, that's the thing yeah everybody could have been doing something better that would have been more rewarding to the business yeah. create more profitable or even well you've just saved this amount of money because that was going to be wasted anyway so let's stop it and yeah have a share of that <laughs> you know, yeah it's that that but again that yeah, mentality is quite difficult isn't it there where you say well yeah we didn't succeed that was a failed project you cancelled it and like to me that again where 
70% of projects fail or 80% of projects fail or whatever as a statistical thing that's rolled out, the definition, of, I was talking about this the other day, the definition of failure in that instance, does that mean, because I'm not entirely sure, and I don't know, you're, you're probably a lot, way more experienced than me on that, that failure should be failure to deliver the benefits that are yeah, needed by I, the business when you I finish the project, not the benefits that you maybe had at the business case to end because big pieces of work a couple of years, the business changes as exactly that example you said there. Well, why you, that business has changed. Let's stop doing something that doesn't support our new business. Yeah, I, did, I definitely, and I think before that point, I definitely started to feel, because as, you know, when I started off, you know, Project. I love the fact that everybody was involved. Everybody in the business wanted to think to be successful. And I started to feel a point where project people were getting resentful of the business. And I sat in many, many projects, and, and, and whether it was the project manager, the implementation teams, and they would always say, nobody understands us. You know, uh, the business is not listening. Nobody wants to help us. Or when I've implemented the thing, it was successful. But nobody, it was not my fault. It was not adopted. Or, mm-hmm. and, and that barrier just became wrong. And I think it was I didn't really understand people's incentives at that point and I think one of the things I tried to from that point on was I've not been that successful at it but I always keep you know it's my mantra is you we're not project managers we're we're outcome managers we're value managers and mm-hmm. and if we think like that and it, it's for the shared you know for the business for the customer and I think we lost that somewhere in project management and it's certainly I, I started to lose it in my careers we got bigger and more complex and we actually got more structure um, and it, that it was that significant project that made me go back oh, okay now i now i understand where that frustrations come from and almost back to the teacher story um we talked about at the beginning well then okay let's understand everyone's motivations here yeah because everybody no, nobody's nobody's bad nobody's ill-intentioned but everybody's just got different motivations they've got different incentives they've been asked to do different things and actually well that's started to become one of my major focuses as a as a project manager or, or, or whatever role was to actually not just stakeholder manage, but stakeholder understand and go, well, why is everybody here? And also, okay, why do you do your job? What's your incentivize and what's the metrics you get measured on? Because then you'd have to try and align that before you even started to try and deliver something together. Um, and it, you know, it took me you know, to that point to learn it. Um, and you know, by that time I was you know, good 10 years into my career. <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's the thing you need to go through that. Maybe it is one of those um, experiential things that you can't know, you can't see it until you've you've been through enough times to be able to go hang on something feels weird here and i don't and and that that realization comes at some point with all of us i imagine yeah absolutely so well i hope you enjoyed the first half of that interview uh next week i will put out the the second part um and that all i've got to say is thank you for listening and um as i say every episode if if you want to support the show please first thing share it um something i forgot to mention in the news segment was that in the last month we seem to have got a great tick up of of uh, listeners um, kind of doubled the number of listeners which is fantastic so um, for those who have shared liked or um, just commented on any social media posts really appreciate it and thank you very much and if there's and um, you new listeners um, I hope 
uh, you're enjoying this experience and check out some of the back catalogue because uh, there are some great people that we've uh, managed to pin down and talk to there. Um, if there is anyone out there who feels that they have something they would like to contribute, as I mentioned, I've got um, uh, Adrian Bellagion, I've got Sarah Hoban, and I've got, I didn't mention, I've got Ricardo Vargas as well, that returns with a, let's find out a little bit of background around him. And, and that's my roster for leading up to Christa, Christmas. Um, and uh, this year I'm going to, I'll break away from my usual routine of having a, an episode at the end of the year, uh, right on New Year's Eve from a uh, interview point of view. I'll put those before Christmas. But I'm looking for interviewees ready to start the new year. Wouldn't mind interviewing this side of the year so that we are uh, have them all lined up and I'm less stressed at the beginning of January trying to pin people down when people are busy. And uh, so, yeah, so thanks again. So thanks again for joining. Thanks again for sharing. Uh, if you do want to contribute, um, you can grab a copy of one of my books, which are on, uh, if you go to nigelcreaser.com, look in the shop there, there's all the links there to the relevant different areas. Um, we may, the project lunch, the Sunday lunch project ensemble, may be doing a remix of our uh, uh, 12 days of project that we released for Christmas um, last year, I think it was, or was the year before, whichever it was. Um, so have a, uh, have a, a dig around. If none of you have heard that before, jump onto your favourite music thing and search for the Sunday Lunch Project Ensemble. 12 Days of Project Elf Mix is my favourite one of those. Um, and grab a copy or just stream it. That'll help support the show. Um, and uh, we have the Patreon page. Again, that Patreon page, uh, if you jump along there, there's a couple of bonuses that you can get. Um, a couple of links to a few digital copies of the book, um, etc. Books, uh, but uh, and I think really that's that's great. Um, the other options is is if you could jump onto your um, relevant podcast server, whoever server, whether it's iTunes or Spotify, etc. Um, or now Apple, uh, not Apple, sorry, Amazon. Um, give us a, a review um, helps other people find it if there's jumps up rankings with more stars on it uh, and, but finally the last thing please come back next time and uh, find out more about Craig so have a wonderful day uh, between now and the next episode it will be Halloween so have a spooky time thanks very much cheers now bye well it's goodbye from me Nigel Creaser and it's goodbye from him, the Sunday Lunch PM. Goodbye.